from the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, 
most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not yet has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Christ is risen. Well, happy Easter, brothers and sisters. We have come to another year of celebrating the Lord's resurrection. And, and even in saying that, I want to just amend that. We do this every Sunday. And in fact, that was our emphasis last year, that over the years we have been examining in the time of Easter the importance of the Lord's resurrection. And we've examined this in a number of different lenses through the Scripture, We've examined each of the Gospels and some of the epistles in the major places where they deal with the Lord's resurrection. For example, in Mark's Gospel, we saw the absolute wonder as the women who arrive at the tomb expecting Jesus to be dead leave in absolute wonder. He tells them to go and tell the world, go and tell the disciples, and they just, the, the Gospel ends and they're just afraid. They're just in wonder. They're in awe. It was shocking. It was so shocking even to Jesus' first disciples that they were not only caught off guard, but they were bewildered. A few years ago in John's gospel, we saw how Christ appeared like a gardener to Mary. Mary presumed him to be the gardener. 
And the reason for this is Jesus was saying something about himself. He's the, he's the last Adam who's undoing the sins of the first Adam. The first Adam sinned in the garden. He transgressed at the tree. And now this last Adam has paid for sins at the tree, faithfully upheld God's word, and has now begun to remake the earth, removing the thorns and thistles from the ground. We saw last year how Christ told Mary to go find his brothers, a term that in John's gospel, up until the moment of the resurrection, was exclusively used for Jesus' natural brothers. And when, she, when he says, go tell my brothers, it says that she immediately went and, and told the disciples. This is a picture that our adoption was accomplished in the resurrection. Not only has Jesus been raised from the dead, but he has brought us as his family, as his sons and daughters, spiritually speaking, into his fold. He's he's made us his flock, he's made us his family, and he calls us brothers and sisters. The ones who had recently, three days prior, abandoned him, he then reaches out and brings together into his family. Also last year, we saw how the resurrection of Jesus Christ transformed time itself. We sang this morning, crown him the Lord of years, the potentate, the one who has powerful rule over all time, and how through the resurrection of Jesus on the Lord's day, it has now stamped the history of the, the, the church as she has celebrated the resurrection early in the morning each week on Sunday or on the Lord's Day. It actually transitioned the whole nature of worship for God's people. Not only that, it shapes the future as we see in this passage today. As Paul reminds the Corinthian saints in his letter, we see not only the past transformed by Christ, that he undid the death of Adam, but his resurrection radically reshapes our understanding not just of past, in paying for sins and atoning for sins and defeating death, but also the future. Jesus doesn't just undo what Adam did. He also sets in motion the grand toppling of all of the enemies of God with that last enemy, as Paul teaches the Corinthians, being the defeat of death. Christ's victory over death does certainly undo Adam's unleashing of death. But because Christ was raised to life, all those who trust in Him will be raised to life at the end of all things in His second coming. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything about our future. And if it changes everything about our future, then it must by necessity change everything about how we live our present. Paul's letter to the Corinthians didn't just answer a great doctrinal problem in their church in that day. It also answers one of the most pressing issues in the church of our day. God's people do not recognize their responsibility to share the gospel to their family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, really all who they meet. And this is exactly what begins in the resurrection. As soon as the women come to the tomb expecting to find Jesus still dead in the tomb, when they find him missing they then immediately go and tell someone what's happened. This little embryonic picture of what the gospel will become throughout the the history and throughout the future of the church has to shape how we live our lives. 
We often think, well, we'll bring them to church, or it will be the pastor's job to disciple them or to share with them. But brothers and sisters, the church was given the gifts of the ministries, the fivefold ministries, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Pastor Greg uh, last week mentioned that we're going to be doing a book study this summer on evangelism, and I thought it would be helpful for us to see exactly how the resurrection informs the boldness which we need if we're going to do evangelism. The reason the resurrection is important is not just because of the wonderful cosmic victory that Jesus has done, but of what it tells us individually and corporately about who we are now and where we are going. It tells us that we will one day rise and live with Christ forever and ever. Therefore, I want to look at four aspects of this passage in the, Corinth, in the Corinthian letter. First, the apostolic witness of Christ as the apostles faithfully transmitted what they had beheld in the resurrection to the Corinthians. And then the inseparable link to Christ between Christ and each believer. Next, I want to look at the victory of Christ over all things as as. Paul says to the Corinthians that he must reign until he has put all of the enemies under his feet feet, and that the last enemy to be defeated is death. Finally, I want to impress upon us the importance of a daily walk as those knowing that we will rise for life forever and we will live with our Maker forever. Paul's letter to the Corinthian saints, it must be remembered, addresses very significant errors in their faith and practice. The Corinthian church, when when people preach through the book of Corinth or even read through, or even your study Bible notes might say that the Corinthian church was a deeply unhealthy church. And it is true that the Corinthians were boasting in certain things which are not profitable for Christians. However, it also has to be remembered that Paul opens the letter thanking God for the genuine work of grace among them. He, he actually praises God, and this is his confidence. By way of example, Paul is teaching us to love the church even when it is unhealthy. This is so important, brothers and sisters. You will have pastors and elders and deacons and Bible study leaders and home group leaders in your life who are wretched sinners like you. And they need your thanksgiving to God. They need your petitions on their behalf. The church is always in a state of brokenness and yet reforming. There's always weakness. There's always sin. There's always mixture. And yet Christ loves His bride. And Paul, by extension, thanks God for the bride, though he addresses her errors. And in fact, this is a very important issue. Paul addresses the simple fact of divisions of rivalry and pride, which is a fracturing of the body. I want you to imagine a patient on a, on a table where their, their limbs are just hanging on by threads. This is what was going on in Corinth. They were at war with each other. They were holding each other up as, as super apostles and saying, I'm, I'm a disciple of Paul. I'm a disciple of Cephas. I'm a disciple of Jesus. And there was all this warring and factions going on. But it has to be understood, the reason Paul writes this letter is because he believes there's an authentic work of God's grace in that church. And because there is an authentic work of God's grace in that church, his letter will have the intended effect. It will accomplish 
the aim for which Paul wrote the letter. He knows that they will indeed receive his teaching, rebuke, and correction through that letter. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written the letter. If he wasn't convinced that God was doing something in Corinth, he wouldn't have written the letter. This teaches us the importance of the Corinthian letter for the church today. One of the most significant doctrinal errors in the Corinthian church was a denial of the future resurrection from the dead. There were some people, whether it was from the pulpit or from the lay people, there were some people in the Corinthian church who thought or taught that Christ was not raised from the dead, or if Christ was raised from the dead, it has nothing to do with us, and there will be no resurrection from the dead bodily. This is very common, brothers and sisters, in the American gospel. Have you ever heard a song? It's one of the most popular gospel songs in the nation, All Fly Away. All fly away, O Lordy, all fly away. Now, brothers and sisters, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. But, but the idea that that, that bodily salvation is the point of the gospel, misses the entire aspect of the gospel. The central work of Christ, the reason we worship on Sundays and not necessarily on Fridays, although we have a prayer meeting on Fridays, the reason the church celebrates the resurrection on Sundays is because the resurrection tells us everything about the gospel. We won't die and stay dead. We will come back to life. God is not just a God of souls. God is the God of all of His creation. And all of His creation, which was subjected to the fall and subjected through Adam to sin and death, it has been subjected so that the revelation of the sons of God would take place. And that will be manifested in the second coming. Essentially, Paul is teaching in this passage that what has happened to Christ is going to happen to all of those who trust in Christ. In correcting this error, Paul has to preach the entire gospel again because their mistake in their emphasis of just hoping in a soulless state with God or or some sort of understanding of the gospel only applying to our spirits, Paul feels the need to go all the way back to the beginning. And he demonstrates the inseparable link between what has happened to Christ and what will happen to each of these Corinthian saints. In verse 1, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, by which, uh, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Just as a note of importance here, this is deeply helpful as we understand what the gospel is. The gospel is not just message for the unbeliever. No, in fact, Paul says to these Corinthian, Corinthian saints, this is the gospel by which you are being saved. There is a progressive salvation that is taking place from these Corinthians, and it all has to do with the one kernel of truth as he calls the gospel. This is the gospel in which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. The gospel of Christ as it's proclaimed accomplishes both the conversion of sinners and the perseverance of saints. The gospel of Christ is not just something of which unbelievers are concerned or converted. The gospel is the message of good news both to the sinner and saint alike. 
As Paul says, they are holding fast. They are standing in the gospel. They are being saved. And therefore, because of this, Paul is quick to remind them of his exclusive focus on Christ's victory. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. When Paul uses this phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures, he doesn't mean as you heard in the Gospel of Mark or as you read in the Gospel of Matthew. Because at the time that he wrote the Corinthian letter, it's doubtful whether the Corinthians would have obtained a copy of the Gospel of Mark. When Paul, mean, when Paul says that Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures, he means as it was prophesied in the Old Testament. He does not mean as we have explained to you and written down. For Paul, the historic fact of Christ's death is rooted in a prehistory, and that prehistory is the historic covenant promises of God to His people. The resurrection of Jesus, therefore, is not just something that begins a New Testament. No, it is the capstone of all of God's promises to the people of Israel that He had promised over and over to rescue them from all of their enemies. After Christ was raised, therefore, He appeared to His apostles who He sent into the Word to proclaim God's covenant faithfulness. And that, or after that, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God." Because Christ has died for our sins, Paul is able to rehearse his former sins to encourage the Corinthian believers. How freeing is the gospel of Christ that we can identify and name our former sins without any continuing shame. Rather than glory in or celebrate the darkness of his wickedness, Paul highlights his sins to show the irony of the fact that he's an apostle. He highlights the irony of his apostleship to emphasize the link. If Christ wasn't raised and I wasn't transformed, I would have never preached to you, Corinthians. Without anything commendable in him, God chose Paul anyways to proclaim the resurrection of his son to his people. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, and here's the link, so we preach and so you believe. Paul directly connects Christ's resurrection, the historic fact of Christ's resurrection, and the belief of the, Christian, uh, the Corinthian Christians by one thing, a historic truth in the apostolic witness. Those who believed in Corinth did so because of apostolic preaching. Now, when I say apostolic preaching, I do not just mean the apostles who proclaimed the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also that sort of preaching which accords with their preaching. 
That is to say, what the apostles were commissioned with by Christ, as His spokesmen, they have proclaimed that word, and then they have written down that word. What Paul is saying is this, if Christ has not risen, the apostles could never preach. And if the apostles never preached, the Corinthians would have never believed. There is a direct link, brothers and sisters, between our faith and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you would have never believed the gospel because He would never have sent out His apostles to proclaim His message. Having just rehearsed the history of the Corinthians' faith and how they came to faith, Paul then moves to correct this dangerous error of denying the resurrection. Remember, he said Christ was raised, He appeared to the apostles, and then they proclaimed Him. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. That there's two inseparably linked things. The resurrection of Jesus has created the church who believes in His message. Therefore, he says in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It's a category error. If if Jesus is a man and he's raised from the dead, how can you say that there will be no resurrection of the dead for men? Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul here is presuming or, or asserting, if you will, an unbreakable link between what has happened to the person of Jesus Christ and what will happen to the saints. Theologians use this phrase, the forerunner, to describe Christ in His relationship to the body, that Christ is the forerunner. He goes ahead of His people so that all who believe will not be forced to taste death. In Hebrews 2.9, it says, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death. For everyone. Jesus said, of those who believe in him, none of them should die. What, what an amazing promise. What does he mean? He doesn't mean that you won't die in your body. He means you won't die forever. You will not die and stay dead. Paul here is writing to the Corinthians in a very similar way that he wrote to the Roman Christians. He wrote concerning our baptism and our sanctification that it implies a union with Christ in His death and resurrection. In Romans chapter 6, 3 and 4, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? That our baptism has brought us into fellowship with His death, that that the baptism with which you are baptized, it brings you, it connects you to the death of Christ. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is so helpful for us as Christian disciples who are are walking with the Lord Jesus, we have to see the person of Jesus Christ as going before us in our place, not only taking on the guilt of our sin, bearing it on the cross, dying in our place, and being raised from the dead, but that that resurrection will imply a radical truth which should mark every day of our life. Therefore, Paul is able to say, Essentially, if the saints aren't going to be resurrected, 
then Christ hasn't been resurrected because one implies the other. If you think about it in mathematical terms, A, therefore B. In fact, there's no insertion in the middle to break this chain. A lot of times you'll hear an argument A and B, therefore C. No, he says A implies B. If not B, then not A. That's what Paul's doing in this argument. And as, as stuffy as that may feel or logic-y as that may feel, Paul's saying that for the Christian who is linked to Christ, if the Christian won't be raised from the dead, you're saying Christ was never raised from the dead because whatever takes place for Christ is going to take place for those who trust in Christ. That link cannot be broken. Verse 14, he goes on to say, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Remember that historic link between the historicity of the resurrection and the commissioning of the apostles to preach, and therefore the Corinthians hearing this message of good news? If Christ never was raised, then we were doing something foolish by preaching to you, and you were even worse of fools by believing us. Verse 15, we would even be found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. What Paul is saying here is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed the destiny of all those who trust in Christ. Before Christ came and died and was raised in our place, all those who were born of Adam were doomed to die forever. And what Jesus has done is He has come, died in their place, taken on their penalty, and defeated their death such that all who trust in Him are no longer in Adam alone, but are now in the last Adam in Christ. As he says in verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, the historic link between His resurrection and the Corinthian faith and salvation is broken. If Christ has not been raised, there can be no forgiveness of sins because he said Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and he was raised from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. What Paul is saying is this, if Christ's resurrection was attested by the Old Testament and he never rose from the dead, then how should we believe the crucifixion accomplished the forgiveness of sins because both of them are attested by the same source, the Scriptures. Put another way, if there's no resurrection of the body of Christ, the head was not raised either. Verse 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. For Paul, the bodily resurrection from the dead is the final victory that is given to the Christian. In verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, why should we believe that He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures? If Christ has not been raised, then death has indeed had the last laugh. Ultimately, everything is pointless. If Christ has not been raised, then those who trusted in Christ to save them from their enemies have ultimately been put to shame, because the biggest enemy, the one that none of us can ever defeat, death, has had the last laugh for those who trusted in Christ. If death is the end of everything, essentially life is an absurd and cruel joke. 
You get born, you experience something, you eat some food, you maybe have some children, you die and are a meaningless blip on the history of an absurd universe in which everyone will just die. That's essentially where Paul is going. He's, he, he's not going there in his letter, but if you take his argument to the full extent of what he's implying, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then why are we alive? If there's no resurrection, ultimately, no matter what we do, whether it's an act of service for someone else, or whether it's attempting to preserve our own life, or seeking to honor God in our time on the earth, ultimately, nothing matters because we won't live ever again. If there's no resurrection, death ultimately triumphs over life. And that God who said, let there be light, for those who've lived in His light, everything will actually be darkness. Brothers and sisters, Christ has indeed trampled down death by His death, and He's been raised to newness of life. And therefore, we do have a reason to keep living. Paul is entertaining this argument in his letter only to demonstrate its folly. Remember, he's not saying that Christ hasn't been raised. He's saying if Christ hasn't been raised. He's interacting with this argument to show the the futile pointlessness and the absurdity of saying that Christ has not been raised. Paul, therefore, is asserting the truth of what has indeed been preached already as true. He says in verse 20, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Though Adam unleashed death, Christ unleashed resurrection from the dead. Christ himself has been raised, and when he returns, he will defeat his final enemy." Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. As a side note of eschatology, If your eschatology begins with Christ defeating his enemies at the second coming, then the first enemy to be defeated is death, and then he'll defeat all of his other enemies. We're not going to go there, but I just want you to think about that. If everything's getting worse and worse, and Christ will return, and those who have trusted in Christ will be raised on that final day, then Christ isn't defeating his enemies now. He's waiting to start defeating his enemies. Nevertheless, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Not he must reign when he has put all of his enemies under his feet. When Christ returns, as Paul says, he's going to deliver the kingdom of God to his Father as the glorious offering of all of his life and his reign. Just as the Father and the Spirit have worked together to procure a bride for the Son as a wonderful wife prepared a fit helper for the Son of God, and also as the Father and the Son have fashioned a temple in which the Spirit can dwell, so Christ has worked to bring about a gift for the Father. Christ has inaugurated and stewarded a kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that Christ has been reigning over will become perfect. 
And when it is perfect, the Son will offer it up to the Father, and He will give it over. That's why Paul goes on in verse 27 and 28 to say that then Christ will be subjected, that God may be all in all. The Lord Jesus Christ will not permit anyone to be an enemy underneath His reign. Once Christ's reign is complete, He's going to give this gift to the Father, but until then, we live in the time between then and now. After Jesus has destroyed the remaining few of His enemies, keep in mind there are still enemies, then He will also defeat death in His glorious return. He will not defeat death sooner. All of this stuff that you see on the internet of futurism and cryogenics, we don't have time to examine the philosophies behind them, but brothers and sisters, this is man without resurrection. He knows that death is, its, is his final enemy, and he cannot do anything but try to put it off. Even while dying, they, they go to, to their death with this hope that one day they'll be brought back to life when medical technology is advanced enough. No matter what the breakthroughs that man has made, we've never achieved invincibility. And that's what we long for and what we need and what the gospel alone can promise to man. But not only does the gospel promise that we will be raised, but it also promises the victory of Christ in time, in history, progressively unveiled until that great second coming, where He will give a perfect kingdom, fully matured, fully prepared, perfectly aged like a great wine or, or a wonderfully prepared work of art, and He will offer it up to the Father, and the Father will reign forever. The point that I am emphasizing this morning is we have amazing news. Not only will we cheat death through the death of Jesus and come back to life and live with Him forever, but we know the end of the story. It's like if you can imagine being on D-Day, coming up the shores of Normandy, and all of a sudden, by some time machine, a little piece of paper gets floated to you, and it's got that one... Do you remember that picture of the sailor who's kissing the woman in New York City, proclaiming victory, that, that the war in Europe was over? That's what we have in the epistle to the Corinthians. We have the knowledge of Christ being victorious in time over history and our resurrection with Him at His glorious second coming, and we are still in the battle. He says that all of the enemies will be put under His feet, but as of yet, they are not put under His feet. Therefore, as Christ reigns even in the midst of His enemies, and not all have been defeated, we must live as those with the knowledge that we will one day rise, never to die again. As the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. Isn't this true, brothers and sisters? I see a lot of things. You have seen a lot of things this week, maybe even in your own self, let alone in the news or in your family or in the world around you, that at present you do not see everything in subjection to Him. So how can we say that Christ reigns if there are still enemies in His midst? It's important to remember that although Christ was crowned, uh, that David was crowned king, He was not immediately reigning as He was crowned. And even once He was seated on the throne in Jerusalem, he was not victorious over all of the enemies in the land. Nevertheless, King David was still King David. Amen? 
You can be a king and allow for a temporary season enemies to roam through your territory with limited boundary, limited opposition. This is how Christ reigns. In Psalm 110, the psalmist records that Yahweh said to his anointed one that he was to rule in the midst of his enemies. Therefore, ever since his glorious resurrection and ascension, Christ has been reigning and has been defeating his enemies. And although the war has been won, the battles are not yet over. There, in the history of wars, there have been decisive battles where the battle effectively won the war for either side, and yet there were still little skirmishes throughout the rest of the, the campaigns. You can think of significant battles like Antietam or Gettysburg in our history, or even other, other battles throughout the, the, the battle at Waterloo, where, yes, Napoleon still had armies and they still did some things, but it was over. That's what's happened in the resurrection of Christ. Christ has won the war, brothers and sisters. There are still little battles And you have to fight those battles, and you have to participate. Even if his enemies appear to win some battles, we must not live as those who live assuming Christ has been defeated. Those battles are dangerous, and those battles may even cost some of our our lives. Most of us would not go into the Corinthian heresy and say or elucidate that there is no resurrection from the dead. But my challenge to you this morning is, are you living like there is a resurrection from the dead? Not just whether you intellectually believe and have taken a systematics class and know, as we said in the creed, that he'll raise up at his second coming all those, the quick and the dead. Do you live your life with the knowledge that just as Christ rose and just as the Spirit of God is giving life to your mortal body today, that one day, at His second coming, you will live with Him forever. Because Christ has been raised, we ought to celebrate like He's been raised. I love this church. One of the reasons I love this church is because you are a people who love shouting in worship. I just read on a national blog this week about some pastor who's a very faithful pastor who elucidates the scriptures, and he's pleading with his people to shout in worship. If you've ever seen a football game, you have witnessed people who are convinced that the victory on the field somehow is a victory for them. Brothers and sisters, we ought to celebrate like Christ has been raised. The whole of our lives should be marked with the understanding that he's been raised. And if we trust in him, we'll never taste death either. We'll be raised as well. Not only should we celebrate as if he's been raised, since he's been raised, because Christ has been raised, we should work and give ourselves to his kingdom like he's been raised. Because we know that Christ has been raised, we can pour out our souls in working for his people. That's why Paul in this passage says, I worked harder than any of them, but alas, it were not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Since Christ has been raised and we too will be raised, we can count our lives cheap. We can count our lives cheap compared to the eternal glory of Christ. There may be a day in this country where persecution rises to the effect that it costs you something to be a Christian. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
Nevertheless, even if persecution doesn't arise in this country, you may be called by the Lord to go to a place where it is costly to follow Christ, to name Christ, to pour out your lives for the sake of the gospel. And the reason you can do that is because you know you will live forever. There's a a practice in the early church called memento morti, and it has become a very helpful practice to me. Memento morti just means remember that you will die. What are you spending your time on? You're going to die eventually. It's like Siggy and What About Bob. I, I can't help but reference. If you've seen What About Bob, you know where I'm going. This is a child who cannot deal with the fact that he's going to die. He has no theology of resurrection. Yes, we must remember that we are going to die. But perhaps more importantly, you have to remember that you're going to live forever. What are you using your life for on this earth? Just as the apostles were sent into all the world, we too are called to proclaim Christ risen from the dead and reigning today. And proclaiming this message will indeed cost us dearly. We as Christ's disciples must be willing to let our reputations, our fortune, and perhaps even our own lives be taken from us as we spread his gospel. And brothers and sisters, let me make this plain. If your life is not yet taken in spreading the gospel, then your life should be spent in spreading the gospel. Even if you're not going to face martyrdom today, what are you doing today? The reason we can do this joyfully is that we know what we have in Christ, life forever. In the final stanza of A Mighty Fortress is Our God, the famous reformer Martin Luther penned these words that have become precious and sweet. That word, Christ's word, Christ's word of forgiveness, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. It's forever. It will never stop. You will live with God forever. That's what Easter proclaims. And it doesn't just give us a glorious future. That glorious future must break in to this glorious present Our whole lives must be shaped by this fact. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, we can live in confidence that just as Christ reigns over his enemies, we too will rise in final victory against death. Even in the face of persecution and suffering, we remember that we will live forever in the presence of the Lamb and with the glorious company of the prophets and the apostles and the saints faithfully departed. And we won't just live in an ethereal reality like the Philadelphia cream cheese commercials of clouds floating by and harps being strummed. As wonderful as that picture might be, you will live in a perfect earth with no sin and cancer and no leukemia and no temptation. And you'll behold the Lamb forever and ever. I want to encourage you with a story. I know it's late, but I've been radically marked by this account from John Bradford. I want to tell you in two paragraphs the history of the life of John Bradford as an encouragement to waste your life proclaiming the gospel. 
Before Mary Tudor, the queen who arose in the nation of England, who was a, was a Catholic and she persecuted the church, before her reign was even a month old, John Bradford was arrested on a trivial charge and confined to the Tower of London, never to be a free man again. His time in prison was not wasted as he continued to preach to all who would listen and to write letters and treatises that would encourage his fellow believers in the prison. During his two-year imprisonment, he was cast for a time into a single cell with three other fellow reformers, Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, and Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer and Ridley were the ones who said, as they were being burnt to the stake, play the man, Master Ridley, for today we shall light a fire in England, which by God's grace shall never be put out. Those are some words to say when you're about to be burnt, brothers and sisters. Those aren't the words I want to emphasize. I want to emphasize John Bradford's words. Their time together, Cranmer, Ridley, Latimer, Bradford, their time together was spent encouraging one another and in careful study of the New Testament. What an amazing act in prison to study the New Testament. All three were to become martyrs. Finally, on January 31st, 1555, Bradford was, was brought to the notorious Newgate prison to be burned at the stake as a heretic. Though his burning was scheduled for four in the morning, there was a great crowd made up of many who admired Bradford. Bradford at this time had earned the nickname Holy Bradford. Not because he was stodgy, but because all who came in touch with him were encouraged to holiness. There was a great crowd who had come to witness to the execution. He was chained to the stake with another young martyr, John Leaf, who was only 19 years old, although he was a Christian. After begging forgiveness of any that he might have wronged and freely forgiving those who had wronged him, he turned to his fellow martyr, John Leaf, just a boy, 19 years old. I want you to imagine a 19-year-old man right now. He said to John Leaf, knowing that he was very scared, he encouraged him with these words, be of, good, be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. Brothers and sisters, Bradford is having a merry supper with the Lord, and we one day will meet him. There will be a glorious resurrection, and the glorious company of the saints will live forever, and we will be able to meet people who have spent their lives proclaiming the gospel and oh, that we would have something to share, that we were not only inspired by their witness, but that we did what they encouraged us to do, that we spent ourselves for the sake of the gospel. So my charge to you this morning is this, as those who, with the promise of new life, forever in Christ's presence, let us spend our lives boldly witnessing to others of his death, resurrection, and reign, and second coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the letter to the Corinthian church. We thank you that your son's resurrection necessitates our resurrection, that we know with absolute certainty that we will live forever, not only in your presence, but in a glorious, renewed heavens and earth. Lord, we thank you that you will restore all that was broken in the fall of Adam, and that just as you've defeated death, you will one day defeat death for all of your people. We pray that you would give us courage, that you would help us to, to have eternal perspective, and that you would enable us by your Spirit and your grace empowering us alone to count our lives cheap for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.